listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, everyone. (laughs) Well, today we are going to talk about motherhood and the heart of God. Before we start, I am going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. God, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would guide it. We pray that you would be with us, that you would teach us more of your heart. We pray that you would um, still distractions and help us just focus and learn and be encouraged. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, motherhood is an interesting journey. I... When my first son was born, my first son, my first child, that's the word, only have one son. (laughs) When he was born, I had no idea what I was doing. Hadn't really had a lot of small children around me. And when they gave him to me at the hospital, I had no idea what to do. I'm like, I don't know how to change a diaper. Like, what do I do with this thing? I'm supposed to be in charge of it. I'm supposed to go home and know what to do. They don't have instruction manuals really came to a head a couple days after he came from the, from, from the hospital, and I realized that we needed food. To have food, that meant going to the grocery store, which meant I had to take this small child with me to the grocery store and buy food. And so we get there, and I have the baby in the car seat and a cart. And I look at the baby, and I look at the cart, and say, I don't know what to do. Do I take the baby out of the car seat and put him in the cart? Like, well, he can't sit up. Do I put the car seat on top of the cart? It'll fall off. Do I put the car seat in the cart? Well, then I can't buy groceries because there's no space for them. Do I try to carry him while I push the cart? Like, well, but that's kind of dangerous too. He's kind of floppy, you know, like a fish. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. And so I asked one of the workers. I'm like, I've never done this. What do I do? And she looks at me and she looks at the baby and says, I don't know. Like, wonderful. So we ended up putting the car seat with the baby into the cart and trying to put as many groceries as we could underneath the cart, on top of the cart, balanced precariously over my newborn without falling on his head. And I came home pondering why this was so hard and all the emotions that this brought up, and I realized I had felt that before. I felt it when I was first in Kenya. It was called culture shock. It was when all of the rules that apply to normal life no longer apply. And everything that I've ever known on how to be normal doesn't work. And I have to renegotiate how to survive daily life. From the simplest things like buying food to how on earth do I manage going to church? Or what is expected? Friends invited us to a wedding. What do we do? Do we take the kids? Do we not take the kids? What's appropriate? What's not? How do I show up at a restaurant What's okay? What's not okay? When a family member organizes, you know, a time to go out to eat at bedtime, and it's been a long day, and it's a very small, quiet, romantic setting, what do you do, right? All of these things I had never had to think about in my life before, and all of a sudden going anywhere was so much more exhausting because I couldn't even figure out how to use the stinking stroller, let alone how to navigate the relational and communal context I would find myself in. And it would just be so much more exhausting because I have to analyze everything and relearn how to do everything that I used to think I knew how to learn. It was, motherhood was a new role 
I had never done it before. I had to learn it. Uh, I had went to a conference, and a speaker was talking about motherhood and ministry, and the, the uh, woman named a- Amy Galloway made a point that motherhood is almost a kind of midlife crisis for women. Like, men, t- you know, tend to hit it later in life, and through career, but for women it happens when you have kids because all of a sudden all the roles that you had before have to be reshuffled and rejuggled and refigured out. And it comes to this point of figuring out, you know, who am I now? What am I, who am I as a person? How do I do things? What is important? What do I have to let go of? And it's this process. And how does this reflect on my relationships with others and my relationship with God? And like culture shock, you have good days and bad days. There's the days where it's like, this is wonderful. And then there's the days you just cry in the shower. <laughs> and you just, I don't know. I tried everything. I did everything I could possibly do. And there's the things that are, you know, wonderful and easy. Like, oh, they're so cute. They give the best hugs. And the other days of like, what did I get myself into? Like, you did not just do that, child of mine. <laughs> and, and then there's the frustrating thing that it's not just something you learn once and you're done with, right? Because it keeps changing. You think you master a season, like, oh, I got this down, and then they change. Like, wait, your nap time used to be this, and now it's this. Or this method of discipline used to work, and it doesn't work. And then when you have multiple kids in the mix, it's even worse because they have different personalities. It's like, man, there's no way to be able to have this master because every stage is different and I have to grow and adapt and change constantly according to what my children need and it is a process. And I have only done this for four years. I can't even imagine for people that have done it for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, (laughs) right? Because even when our children become adults, they're still our kids and we still are parenting them in our own ways even when they're adult kids who think they know everything. Now, this process has forced me to really analyze and think about and meditate on what motherhood teaches us about the heart of God. Because God made mothers, right? He made them for a reason. What is that reason? And what does it teach us about God's heart? Now, before we go farther, I want to differentiate between biological mothers and social or spiritual mothers. Uh, Pastor Jason touched on this slightly, but as he pointed out the fact, just because we have physically reproduced doesn't mean that someone is a mother, okay? That is an important role, and a lot of times these two roles coincide. The person who gave birth to you is also the one who raises you and teaches you how to be a human being, but that's not always the case. And there's also lots of cases where we have lots of mothers, right? Usually there's not just one person who acts as your mother. You have aunties, grandmas, older cousins, friends of the family, neighbors down the street who also act as your mothers, right? I had lots of mothers. The more mothers, the better, because I had so many different women who spoke into my life. One of the most uh, impactful women in my life had no kids. She had never actually physically reproduced, but she took me under her wing as, her, as another mother to me and taught me how to live, how to be an adult, and she just mentored me in life. And I always looked at her as another mother figure in my life. And her role in my social Um, as a social mother was invaluable. And so in this message today, I want to focus on this idea of being a social mother, okay? We can learn a lot from being a biological mother, and that can be another sermon on another day. But for today, my main focus is looking at this role of being a social mother and what that means. And by social mother, I mean the uh, cultural reproduction, right? 
because in the same way that um, mothers physically reproduce in society, they also reproduce culture. This is uh, what we call in anthropology socialization. Okay? It's this process of having these little people who don't know how to be people, who are pretty almost similar, almost like a blank slate, and they have to be taught what language to speak, where they fit in the world, how to eat, how to greet properly, how to sleep, how to basically do everything, how to be contributing human members of society. And this role of socialization is incredibly important. The first five years of a child's life are incredibly important to their formation of becoming human beings. The majority of our brain development happens before the age of five. Majority of our ability to form human relationships happens before the age of five. Our capacity to learn language. If a child doesn't learn a language before the age of five, they can't learn it anymore. Like their capacity to learn a language is gone. And so what we learn in the first five years of our life sets the precedence for the rest of our life. We learn who we are as people. We learn how to relate with people. We learn what's important. And for the rest of our lives, we, so to speak, speak with an accent of what we've been in, uh, imprinted on our lives as children. I mean, yes, we speak with an accent in our language that we speak if we try to speak other language, but also culturally. When we go to another culture, we're going to live with an accent, so to speak, because we know our sense of normal has been imprinted to us and imparted to us by our, by our, um, by our childhoods. And that goes with us the rest of our lives, defining how we, what we feel is normal. And trying to do anything else outside of that that's different than our mamas taught us, all of a sudden is like, oh, this doesn't feel right. This isn't how we do things. This isn't how we eat, right? <laughs> it's like, why do we not eat bugs? Because our mothers taught us not to eat bugs. If you grew up in a place where you eat bugs, it's going to feel completely normal, right? So that is the role of socialization. And the kind of mothers that we are are influenced by the kind of adults we want to create. What are the type of people we want to recreate into society? What are the values we want to see reproduced in the next generation? And different societies have different ideas of what kind of people we should be, right? There are some cultures that value independence and think that we as individuals should live our lives and make our own decisions. And so in our children, we encourage autonomy, decision-making, and a bit of talking back, okay? Other societies, you cannot talk back to your parents. <laughs> that, because in those societies, interdependence and high respect for authority is more valued. And so that's going to influence child-rearing practices. And so there's a lot of diversity in what we do with children, how we, how we, how we discipline, how we encourage, what values we want to see in their lives based on the values of a society and what we want to see the next generation carry on. Now... We also bring into it a bit of our own personalities, right? As individuals, our life experiences, where we've been, what we've done, our own personalities and likes and dislikes, we also use to shape our kids, okay? Um, my, uh, and with my kids, they're stuck with me, and for better or for worse, right? As one friend of mine told me, we all mess up our kids in our own special ways. <laughs> There's no perfect way of doing it, and we will all make mistakes. And so me, I, my kids benefit from my creativity and adventurousness and my love for teaching. They also have to put up with my introversion and the fact that I am really grumpy in the morning. Really grumpy. I am not nice. And so they have to deal with that. And they have to deal with there's sometimes that I'm done talking. It's my introversion coming out. It's like, okay, I've done my hour of social interaction, and I'm done. 
I might have to lock myself in the bathroom for a little while because I need to recharge in order to re-engage with you and, and have the energy to care about you as a person, right? And so that's my personality going into my, my parenting style. And the same way my mom parented me in her own way. She was fantastic at giving me freedom, encouraging my creativity, but it, she was super high energy and very, very extroverted and a very strong personality. And so she, her own capacity to mother is influenced by her personality. And she did a wonderful job in many ways. And she developed me in a lot of ways that I wouldn't have necessarily developed if I had a different mother. And so God knows what we need as children, and he gives us that. And God knows what we need as mothers and gives us those kids to grow us. And you don't grow by doing things easily, right? <laughs> so when God decides to grow you, he makes the circumstances needed to test you and to push your buttons and to see how much, what kind of a, like if you think that you've really got it all together as a person, all you need is to have a small child to teach you how much character growth you really need and how much your life is lacking the fruits of the spirit, Right? Try staying up all night and then having patience, love, joy, peace, right? <laughs> then you find what is supernaturally endowed and what is naturally there. <laughs> now, we see throughout the Bible lots of examples of mothers and this importance of socialization. We see again and again, the Bible talks about the importance of mothers teaching our children, okay? We have an invaluable job to teach our children language, how to love, how to, how to walk, how to do everything. On the way here, I had to teach my child all about pollen and bees, as well as the difference between an herbivore, an omnivore, and a carnivore. And then we talked about stop signs. That was in the 10 minutes from my house to church, okay? We are always teaching our children morals, beliefs, discipline, right? My child is always complaining when I tell him no, said, Mommy, I don't like it when you tell me no. And I tell him, you better get used to it because that's my job given to me by God. <laughs> You're going to hear no a lot. <laughs> and that's part of what we do. And in the book of Psalms, David talks about the influence that his mother had on his life. He wanted to serve God as his mother did. Okay? His mother influenced his faith. We also see in the book of Kings and Chronicles the influence of bad mothers. Okay? King after king is mentioned as being a terrible, terrible king who learned a sin and idolatry from their mothers. Their mother's faith and bad behavior influenced their kings, which influenced the entire kingdom. We also see in the book of Timothy, Paul mentioning that Timothy's faith is the same faith that was in his grandfather, or grandfather, his grandmother and his mother. He was imparted his faith through the strong women in his life. That was invaluable. Now, today what I want to focus on is motherhood analogies in the Bible. Okay? The Bible is full of analogies. You know, God likes using metaphors to help us understand. Everything that we have around us is kind of a shadow of the heavenly spiritual realities. And family relationships are full of metaphors about our relationship with God. We see talking about God as our father and us as his children. We see lots of relationships of like bro um, brother-sister, brothers, um, family, family metaphors, as well as husband-wife, okay? And all of these show us characteristics about God, about each other, about our relationships. And so today I want to be looking at um, motherhood 
characteristics that we see in our relationship with God. Now, let me be clear. The Bible never actually says God is our mother, okay? Never uses that direct analogy, but it says God has characteristics that are like a mother, okay? Now, the motherhood analogy is used at times talking about the church and the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Those are all directly called my mother, okay? But God is never called directly my mother. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have references to God being like our mother and having those characteristics. Now, I'm separating out this idea of um, motherhood as a role, okay? You understand role versus essence. So instead of like saying, you know, our, it goes back into that idea of biological versus social, okay? So it doesn't say that, you know, God was our mother who physically gave birth to us, but God as our social mother in certain ways. There are certain characteristics that God has that are like a social mother. And before we get into this, we're going to talk, show a quick video clip to illustrate our first analogy. All right, so our first analogy that we see is the protection of a mother, okay? Nine different places in scripture, we are told that we are sheltered in the shadow of his wings or covered or protected in underneath God's wings or found in the refuge of his wings. And it's this image of protection or covering or safety. For example, Psalm 91.4, it says that he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And again, in Matthew 23.37, Jesus talks about Jerusalem also using this, this uh, metaphor, he talks about Jerusalem, your Jerusalem. Um, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Okay? Now, in that same, it's, it's um, utilizing that same in- imagery of mother hen with her chicks. Now, that mother hen was taking on a dog. In an actual fight, who do you think is going to win? The dog could eat the mother hen. But she doesn't care. She's a mother hen. She's going to protect those babies with her life. She is going to make herself as big as she can and as intimidating as she can, and she's going to tell that dog where to go, right? And the baby chicks are going to hide under, under her wing, and it's that innate capacity of a mother to protect her children. Okay? If you want to see the strength of a mother, see a mother bear robbed of her cubs. Okay? It's that image of a mother as being this barrier, this protector for her children, and her children who are vulnerable, weak, and unable to defend themselves find this place of safety, this refuge, this place of comfort underneath the wings of their mother in the same way that we find our refuge and our comfort underneath the wings of God. And so this is one um, characteristic that God has. God is our protector, okay? And this is one way that God is, has certain characteristics of a mother. Now, the next one is the comfort and compassion of a mother. Um, one example of this can be seen in Isaiah 66, 13, where the Bible says that um, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Okay? 
Uh, this, in the context, is talking about when um, the nation of Israel was taken into exile and the grief that the people of Israel were feeling over, over their loss of their homeland and their city. And so God is then talking about later on when he brings them back together and brings them comfort for all that they've lost. And he's going to comfort them in the same way that a child is comforted by her mother. When something's wrong with my children, they want their mother. Okay, they love their dad. They love their grandma. But when they're really hurt, they want their mother. There's no comfort quite like that of a mother. I remember whenever I would be sick growing up, I would want my mother. She would bring me pudding. Okay? Very important. You can't get over a cold unless you have pudding. Or so I thought, because that was the job of my mother. And one of the hard things as an adult was, I'm sick. Who's going to take care of me? I don't have a mother. Who's going to bring me pudding? I have to go to the store and get my own pudding. I don't like this, right? <laughs> but growing up, that was that important thing of when you're, you know, when you're physically or emotionally hurt, it was that desire for a mother for my mother to be able to comfort me in the same way that my kids also want to be comforted. Another one, um, Isaiah uh, 49, 15, it says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And in this way, the Bible is teaching us how God has even more compassion than a mother has on her kids. A mother's compassion can be pretty incredible. You know, as that we, we see with that mother chicken, you know, she is going to do what it takes to look after her kids. In the same way, mothers, ideally, there's always exceptions to the rules, but ideally mothers love their children, okay? We have compassion on our children. We feel bad when they feel bad. I can hear my child crying with earplugs on down the hall and just wake up. I don't even know I woke up. I just know my mom. I know I'm supposed to wake up, okay? My husband's still asleep without earplugs. He didn't even hear her cry, okay? I heard that baby cry, okay? And I have compassion on her, and I will wake up and take care of her and feed her, even if I really don't want to, because she's my child and I love her. God's compassion is even greater, where it's even deeper than that of a mother, where a mother can still abandon her kids and can still be selfish, because we're human beings and we are finite, but God is the perfect mother who has unlimited compassion on his children and will never abandon them and will be with them even if their own parents forsake or reject them, okay? And so we see God has the capacity to comfort even more than a mother and have compassion even more than a mother. Now, in the New Testament, we also see the, mother, the um, analogy of motherhood used but it's used by the New Testament church, okay? And in, this, in these analogies, we see references to the sacrificial love and nourishment uh, that a mother gives her children, okay? Now, early church leaders compared themselves to mothers, and they talked about their role to the church as being like that of a mother with her children. For example, Galatians 4.19, Paul talks about being having the pains of childbirth for the church in Galatia. Here he's referencing biological childbirth, <laughs> but he has that same sense of I am in pain, I am in labor, reproducing the faith in the next generation of church. The church of Galatia is my child, okay? And he goes through that spiritual childbirth, being able to see his values, his faith, reproduce in the next generation. 
Again, Paul uses this analogy in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6-8, where he talks about caring for the church in Thessalonica like a nursing mother cares for her children. Okay? He's tending the new believers like a nursing mother. Um, he uses the same analogy um, in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews, and even Peter uses it in 1 Peter 2, 2, where new believers are talked about feeding, their, feeding the church on spiritual milk in preparation for them to be understanding enough and old enough and mature enough to be able to have solid food. Now, my daughter is starting to eat solid food. The, it's been some days better than others, right? There's been a lot, a few days she just doesn't want to eat it. Other days it ends up everywhere. Yesterday she spit it up, all, threw it up all over the high chair in the middle of dinner. And some days she just will not have those green beans. <laughs> she decides what she likes and what she doesn't, right? But it's the process of preparing her for solid food. I have to wean her off of milk and prepare her to eat solid food, but it's not an overnight process, okay? It takes time. As a newborn baby, she starts with milk, eats mush, and eventually will be eating, as my son called it, Ezra food, okay? <laughs> and it's a process. And if we skip a stage, 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 it's not going to work because she's not ready for it. Her body can't handle it. And this analogy is used to talk about new believers. When people are newborns in the faith, they have to learn how to handle the things of the faith, the spiritual food, the, the word of God is, and the concepts that we learn as new believers are used in the same way where we start off with very simple concepts and then learn deeper and more complicated ones as we grow in our faith and God teaches us more and more and more. And so with this analogy, we can talk about, you know, Pastor Jason being the mother of the church because he's feeding us on spiritual food. He's giving us milk and hopefully someday we'll be able to handle those mushed up carrots. And then maybe eventually we'll be able to handle some Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? We're working our way up to it. And he, as our mother, has to be wise about what to give us and when. And being able to feed all the kids in the family at the same time without spending the entire day cooking, right? And that is no easy feat some days. <laughs> Everybody's having mashed potatoes for the entire week so we can only eat one thing, right? <laughs> but it's that process as a body of believers, we're in our faith, we go through stages. We are like children. That analogy of becoming like a child in our faith and growing in our faith, growing in our salvation and becoming adults who are mature and able to also reproduce our lives and the lives of other people, right? Because that's, that's the analogy is we give what we've been given, We've been taught and we grow, and so we teach others and we grow. And that brings us to our next section, which is social and spiritual mothers, or our new relationships in the church that we have as new believers. When we are born again, or we come into the faith, 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 faith as new believers, we have new relationships. We are born into a new family. It's not a biological family. It's a social and spiritual family. And... We have new relationships as mothers, as fathers, as sons, as daughters, as brothers, as sisters in the church or the family of God. And we see references to this new relationship all throughout the New Testament. For example, our first relationship, or our first example was Jesus himself. When Jesus um, was teaching his disciples, he mentioned how he wanted, he wanted to make sure that they knew that in the family of God, we have new relationships that are more than just our biological relationships. In Matthew 12, 46 through 50, 
Um, some people came telling Jesus that his parents wanted to talk to him. So it, uh, I'll read. While Jesus was still standing, talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Obviously, Jesus knew who his mother was. Okay? We have other places where he refers to his mother. But in this case, he's teaching his disciples about these new relationships that they're going to have in the family of God, which is determined based on those who follow Christ and those who don't. Those who follow Christ are part of a new family and have new relationships and new expectations. And we see this also at the cross. One of the things that the book of John tells us that Jesus did was he remembered his mother and gave his mother a new son. He looked to his disciple John and said, this is your mother. And he told John, or he told his mother, this is now your son. After Jesus died, John took Mary home to be his mother, and she lived with him in his house for the rest of her life. Now, Mary had other kids. She could have lived with her other kids. Jesus gave his mother a new son to take care of her. Okay? He looked after his mother and decided that this would be the best person to take care of his mother. He created a new relationship. And in doing so, he's sitting there dying in an excruciating thing, t- pain, and he's still thinking of his mother. Okay? That's a good son. <laughs> also, we see in Romans uh, 16, 13, that Paul calls Rufus' mother someone who is like a mother to him. Okay? Even Paul needed a mother. <laughs> he needed spiritual mothers as well. Um, And Paul instructs Timothy to treat older women as mothers. And so also instructs this young pastor that he needs to have mothers and treat them accordingly. Okay? Now, not that biological mothers aren't important. They are important. We're We're told to honor our mother. Okay? Throughout scripture, we're given that commandment to honor our mothers throughout our lives. But we are also to honor our social mothers and our spiritual mothers. There's people in our lives who are like mothers to us, and we have to remember them and honor them and respect them accordingly. Now, the role of social mothers in a church is important. Um, In Titus 2, 3 through 4, we're we're given instructions about this role of social mothers. It says, um, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach their children what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. And I stopped the verse there. This is Paul instructing the new church about the roles between older women and younger women. And the part I want to focus on is where it talks about that the older women are to live well so that they can teach the younger women also how to live well. They're given the instruction that Women that have been around and are, have life experiences are given the, the instruction, the command to also teach the younger women, okay? And uh, it's interesting, the word that is used for loving, to, um, for teaching the younger women to love their children, the word that is used there is only used once in the Bible, okay? It's, um, the word is... Used to be on my notes. Oh, there it is. Philotechnos. 
philotechnos, which is a Greek word specifically referring to the maternal love that a mother has for their children, okay? It's not referring to the agape love that God has for the church, okay? And it's not talking about other kinds of love. This is more of a, a specific type of love that is more of a fondness or an affection or means to delight in their children, okay? And what I really appreciate about this verse is the fact that the older women are instructed to teach, to encourage, to instruct the younger women how to love and delight in their children. I love that because it's not automatic. You don't naturally do it. <laughs> Give me a lot of freedom. <laughs> because there's been days where I'm like, I don't know how to love these kids. And that's okay. It's not automatic. I have to learn it, right? That gave me so much freedom. I remember there was a day I was um, teaching at Crafton. Now, I teach at Azusa Pacific and at Crafton and teach cultural anthropology. And every, every semester, we do this section where we learn about um, gender. We talk about what is it like to be a man versus a woman. What, cross-culturally, what, it, what can we see as differences and similarities? And my class always does an exercise where they compile, they break up into boys and girls, and they make a list of the best compliment and the best insult you can give a man versus a woman. And then we get together and we compare. And it teaches us ideals. What are the ideals for a man and ideals for a woman? And it's really funny to see what the men think are ideals for the women versus what the women think are ideals for the women. <laughs> and sometimes it can be a little confrontational. Like this one day at Crafton, my female students almost killed the men. <laughs> now, they, the men had said that a great compliment to give a man is to tell him that he's a good father. Really interesting. I have never had a semester where men or women give the compliment of being a good mother. Now, I get all kinds of insults about reminding women about their biological role in reproduction. That always ends up on the insult side. It has never ended up on the compliment side. And I have never gotten a compliment to women on the social role of mothering, ever. It teaches us interesting things about the ideals of college students. Um, <laughs> um, I've never done the activity with adults, so it might be different with adults. But what was really interesting with this particular class was when the men said that they needed to be complimented for being good fathers, and I asked them, well, how come the women don't need to be complimented for being good mothers? And the men said, well, because they do it naturally. They're born knowing how to be good mothers. And it was fascinating, the discussion that happened afterwards, because the, the gr girls were like, we are not born knowing how to mother. There is nothing about innately knowing how to change diapers and discipline and do all the work of mothering that is born into us. We grow into it. Yes, there's some things that biology gives us that helps us out, but there's a heck of a lot you have to learn by being thrown in the deep end, right? And what I love about this verse is it's that reminder that there's a lot that we don't know as mothers that we have to learn, and that's okay. It's okay not to know what we're doing. That's why we have the community of believers. I love one of the things about being a mother is the fact that you're automatically into this super secret mom club where anytime you meet another mom, you can automatically be friends and have something to talk about. And a lot of times it's topics that you wouldn't normally bring up in polite conversation. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been at the park with someone I never met where all of a sudden we're talking about poop for hours. 
Something we didn't do before we were moms, right? But it's the sense of, okay, we've been through the same thing, and we can relate, and we can impart wisdom. And be like, how do you handle this? And we share stories about this is how we handled this, you know, this challenge. This is what I rejoiced in. This is what we're going through. And we can share and learn from each other. I've been so grateful for all of the mothers who have taught me how to love my kids. <laughs> because they teach me, hey, this stage doesn't last forever, right? This is how to handle this. Or, or just give me a hug and a cup of coffee and say, it'll pass. <laughs> this too shall end, right? But it's that capacity to be able to encourage each other, to be able to love, to love, our, to delight in our kids, to remind her that it's not permanent, and to rejoice in it, and to learn from it and grow through the process, right? Now, application. A lot of you in this room will never be a biological mother, probably because you're a man. Um, <laughs> or maybe you're a woman who is not going to have kids or is unable to have kids. But just because you're not going to have a biological child doesn't mean you can't be a social mother and have certain characteristics of being a social mother, right? Even men can protect those who are younger or more vulnerable, vulnerable like physically or in faith, right? We all have can have spiritual children. We all have spiritual newborns that we can um, comfort and encourage and teach and protect. And we all have mothers in our lives, right? Now, sometimes our biological mothers may be separated from us by death, by distance, by life circumstances, but we still have other mothers. Who are the other older women in your life who can kick you in the butt when you need it, right? Who can look out you can look out for, to honor, to learn from, and be mothered by. And who are your children, right? Who are the people in your life that you are feeding? Who are the people that you are teaching the word of God to, that you are teaching life to, that you are protecting and loving and teaching and comforting? Because the way that a body of believers reproduces the next generation is by having spiritual babies and physical babies, right? I mean, any religion... You only have converts in two ways. Either you have children or you make converts, which are basically spiritual children. Okay? You don't do that. You don't have a next generation. I love the example of the Shakers. They were a 17th, or they were, they reached their heyday in the 1800s. They were a religious movement who, one of their vows was the vow of celibacy, even after marriage. Like, you don't have children. And so once, (laughs) once the uh, religious movement had like 6,000 people, and today they have two because they never reproduced, right? Celibacy doesn't work when it comes to reproducing the next generation of believers. And so in the church, we have to be having spiritual newborns. We have to be teaching them and growing them in the faith and teaching them how to be human beings and how to be adults. Even for someone that has become a believer at the age of 50, they still are a spiritual newborn, and they have to be mothered by the church. They have to be raised and grown and taught how to eat solid food and taught how to walk and how to crawl and how to become adults, how to go through that teenage rebellion rebellious stage, right? And as well as throughout our entire lives, I mean, we are always children. We are children of God, and we have, we, we have social mothers who, and spiritual mothers who can teach us and impart wisdom. And I am so thankful for the people in my life that have been my spiritual mothers and continue to teach me how to, how to live and how to be a pers- person, how to be a human being and how to live. And so today, and Mother's Day, I am just encouraging you each to just reflect on how these characteristics of protection, comforting, compassion, um, and um, 
giving nourishment and new life to other people, how you can apply that to your own life and in how, how that influences your relationship with God. With that, uh, let me pray for us and invite the ushers up. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your gift of motherhood. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for the spiritual nourishment you give us. We thank you for your protection that we can hide in the shadow of your wings. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to honor the mothers in our lives and encourage more. And we pray that you would help us also to love and encourage and mother other young people in our lives, Lord. And we thank you for just your faithfulness and your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.